Welcome to Resilience Unraveled. Hi everybody and welcome to Resilience Unraveled, a podcast that examines all aspects of personal and organisational resilience. A huge all-encompassing subject that covers the ability to thrive in life by harnessing your cognitive, emotional, physiological and contextual abilities. I share stories from people who have thrived despite remarkable obstacles, as well as highly successful practitioners and experts across a range of topics. And this podcast introduces their amazing stories and expertise, as well as my own reflections, perspectives, strategies and tips, which come from my own synthesis of themes and trends from wider learning. You can go to qedod.com forward slash extras to access offers, tools and resources, including free articles and eBooks. For those of you that would be interested in supporting our work and contributing more proactively, you can find our new Patreon page at patreon.com. Then search for Resilience Space Unraveled. So, let's get started. Enjoy the show. So today, I'm talking to a different type of guest. We're going to be talking to Bob Berry. And Bob Berry is a virtual operations and user experience expert. And you know how we're mostly doing mental health and stories of resilience and, and um, how people have triumphed against adversity. Today, it's really different. We're going to talk about the future. We're going to be talking about something that affects us all, technology. And Bob's your man when it comes to talking about technology. So hi, Bob. Hello, Russell. Glad to be here. Great. And I can detect from the accent already that you're not from these fair shores. So where are you in the world? I'm based in uh, Colorado Springs, the uh, Rocky Mountains in the U.S. And you were telling me earlier you're snowing at the moment in the middle of June. so that's Yeah, impressive. yeah. And it's not here in town, but in the mountains west of here, we are getting some actually fairly heavy snow in some areas. Really? Oh, you see? Jealous already. <laughs> you, could, you could admire the sun, but so, there's something about snow. Well, look, it's a joy to, to be chatting to you today. So give me an, uh, a bit of an overview as, of what it is you do? I mean, how would you describe what it is you get up to? So my expertise is in what we call user experience. And it's about how human beings, how people interact with technology. And that can take on a lot of different contexts and different meanings. Certainly takes on a whole new set of meanings now that we're all dealing with coronavirus and dealing with the economic impact of that and all of the ways that people are trying to figure out how to go contactless and be able to continue to conduct business and conduct their personal lives in this environment where we can no longer meet face to face and where we have to deal with some new economic realities where online, virtual, the web, the internet have become a solution to continuing to do what we need to do in life, both our personal lives and our business lives. So my expertise is figuring out how to create the right kind of experiences in those interactive situations so people and businesses can be successful and we can get done what we need to get done and do it easily, do it quickly and, and make sure that it, for businesses that it's cost effective as well. Yeah. And, how, and how did you get to this point? I mean, what's, what's, what's your rough background? I mean, well, I, I'm actually kind of a, in a nutshell. so I'm kind of a geek. I've always Geeks loved technology. As a kid, I was, fascinated by shortwave radio if you can remember shortwave radio that's that's that goes way back that dates me a little and so when i got into college i got into computer science and i became fascinated by computers and 
you know, computing technology and how you know, information systems work. Uh, actually, out of college, I went to work for Hewlett Packard for a number of years, oh, yeah. which was fascinating. It was back in the day when Bill Hewlett and Dave Packard were still alive. It was a very different company back then. And okay. We actually worked on the scientific instrument side. So mm -hmm. I got to really learn about research in general, but also about how humans and computers and humans and technology interact. And that became an area of fascination for me. After and it, and I left, and it's, it's such a short time that we've been actually interacting with computers, really. It's only a couple, I mean, two decades, three decades. Yeah, we tend to. I was actually involved in some of the early work that HP did when the internet and the web came along, which was early to mid 90s. So it's really yeah. been since then. Right. So it's been about, yeah, the, the web really came online and really became popular and accessible around the mid 90s. So it's been about, yeah, 25 years or you know, 20 years since it's been really, um, you know, popular and been very useful. And of course, you know, not long after that, we all started using all these mobile devices, which is where, yeah. you know, that's where it really exploded. Yeah. Okay. So you went here to Packard and then past that, I know you've been busy with some of the big names and the yes. world of Silicon Valley and such like. So I did a lot of independent work after I left Hewlett Packard. I actually started a few companies, been involved in some startup ventures, uh, a lot of it around user experience and inventing new types of, of ways for people to interact with technology. I started an education company to help young people learn about life and about careers and jobs and money. Um, and then in, uh, at the moment, I work for a company called Answer Lab, which is a major US research company based out of New York and San Francisco. Uh, at the moment, I'm actually doing simultaneous projects for Amazon, Google, Facebook to help them make this transition to providing a lot more of what they do digitally, virtually, helping them create good experiences. At the same time, I'm also working on my own side gig, which is itstheusers.com, which is intended to help a lot of individual uh, professionals and small companies to do the same kind of work to figure out how to create the right kinds of experiences. So as you can imagine, those big brands spend a lot of money. It's very expensive. They invest in this heavily, but individual professionals and small companies can't afford that. So with this, it's the users.com. I help those, uh, those people make that transition and create these experiences as well. Yeah. Brilliant. Now there's a ton of, ton of stuff there to unpack. So oh, goodness, where do we start? All right, let's start uh, here. Uh, I mean, you know what it means. I'm sure everybody knows what it means, but just explain to us what user experience actually means. You know, we tend to define it fairly broadly. Uh, so it's definitely the very focused area where, like you and I are sitting here now on Zoom, yeah. having this conversation across the planet, really. You're in the UK, I'm in the central US, and we're using this interface to record this podcast and have this conversation. That's one example of an experience. But we really look at it a lot broader than that. We tend to look at individuals and businesses context about who they are, what matters to them. Um, you know, what is the narrative? What are people struggling with? Um, what kinds of outcomes or goals are they seeking in life and in their own professions or their own businesses? And so when we take this experience of you and I sitting here at the computer, that's pretty narrow. But if we kind of zoom back and say, you know, who is Russell? What is he trying to accomplish? What he's, what, what's he about? And then you're asking me these same questions about who, who am I? What's my history? What kind of things am I trying to accomplish in the world? That's all part of the experience as well. Yeah. 
So we tend to uh, look at it fairly broadly. Um, so it's a day in the life, it's that full narrative of what people do. Uh, then within that, we really focus on individual decisions that people make when they're doing this kind of interaction. In fact, my own theory or philosophy of this is that in business, nothing happens outside of individual choices that individual people make within the experiences we provide them. So yeah. I challenge anyone to name me a business outcome that is not based on an individual choice that happens within some experience that somebody's having. Within that context, then experience to a large extent is actually what drives the global economy. Yeah. So you take the sum total of all those decisions within all those experiences, and that's the you know, national, international GDP that makes the world go around. So it's, it's yeah. pretty central to everything that happens, and it's what we, what we focus heavily on to make sure companies, individuals can get it right. And that's fascinating, isn't it? Because a lot of people think that UX is a, technolo tech, a technology solution. But actually, it's based on some really sound psychological principles as well. I mean, things like color affect people's decisions and mood and such like. People's choices, you say, can be filtered, manipulated, um, encouraged, whatever it might be, um, you know, using some sort of biases like, um, you know, anchoring techniques and the way we think about prices and such like. There's a, there's a whole, and I, lo I love this interplay between psychology and technology. And because actually... Um, we have to get one right or the other one wouldn't work. You have to understand people to be able to give the user interface that someone would actually be comfortable using. Otherwise, it would just be some sort of, well, it, there would be no interaction, would there? There wouldn't be. And, and a lot of the professionals that I work with, I have a computer science background, but a lot of the other professionals I work with, a lot of my colleagues have backgrounds in behavioral sciences, Yes. in anthropology, uh, in psychology, and so that those human dimensions and what you know what what motivates people yeah what uh, what type of cognitive processes do they go through when they interact with technology, uh, what kind of emotional uh, reactions do they have to what might be happening with, when they 're experiencing um, you know whatever they 're experiencing also a lot of the research that we do doesn 't involve technology yes there's you know it, it, uh, and of course, a lot of what we used to do face-to-face -face, um, is now transitioning. And, we're, and in some parts of the world, we're trying to get back to face-to-face. -to -face. And yeah. of course, the jury's still out on how well that's going to go. Yeah. Um, but again, all of those are individual experiences driven by human emotions, human cognitive capacities, um, human motivations. So that you, you really can't remove all those human dimensions. They're, yeah. they're really essential to this whole science. And so there's a sort of Venn diagram between the human, the machine, and that they're coming together. And it's, it's the extent to which that middle circle grows is the extent to which the, um, the tool becomes something more useful than just a sort of literally a tool, but actually becomes a, um, something that's, that's, that's greater than the sum of its parts. I mean, this is why AI has been able to sort of gain such a foothold, isn't it? Because actually the work you guys have done in UX have, have actually made technological te technology feasible and usable and i mean if you think about before any sort of lockdown how many organizations were struggling to get their workers to work offline 
um, you know, online, I should say, you know, there was all sorts of issues around, would, we, would people like it? Would the technology hold up? Um, how would it work? Could we sit down all day? You know, I don't trust you to do any work if you're sitting at home in your jammers all day long. And within weeks, it's all changed. It's all changed. Yes. Yeah. So a, a personal story. I, I have five kids. And one of them is named Russell, too, by the way. Oh, wow. Um, Good choice. Uh, uh, I, have a, um, I have a daughter who works for the government. Um, she works actually works for the Forest Service here in the U.S. And, uh, and when they were forced to lock down and go to remote, she, yeah, she has a boss that was very much a micromanager yeah. and really wanted to know what everybody was doing every minute. And, um, and, and that's changed dramatically. She's gotten to the point where there was just to keep track of everybody and what everybody was doing was just completely outside of what she had the bandwidth to do. She's just been forced to trust people. She's yeah. been forced to just give people general guidelines and agree on goals and outcomes and let them manage themselves and do the, and do the best they can. Of course, as we're all learning, that's, that's actually in many cases working better than actually being in an office environment. Yeah. So yeah, that's, that's one of many transitions. Yeah. And, the, and, and it seems to me the challenge is that we don't rush to replicate the offline world online, but we understand the differences between the two things. So for example, I, I was chatting to someone who was um, working as a senior leader in an organization who was telling me his job was finished at 10.30 in the morning. And he said to me, what am I doing for the rest of the day? And I said, well, what would you normally do? He said, I'd sit in meetings. And I spoke to him a, le- a week later and I said, what are you doing this week? He said, I'm really busy. I said, what? Because I'm just having all the same meetings as I used to have, but on Zoom now. And yet a meeting on Zoom can be 10 minutes or a, a learning intervention or training or whatever it might be. Whereas in the real world, it takes longer because you've got that, that human thing going on, haven't you? The sort of social joying about football and all the other sort of nonsense. And, and people think they've got to replicate that on Zoom, but actually... It's about understanding the differences, the, how the technology is different to make sure that we don't create the same conditions, but worse online, as it were. Yeah, I think there are some, there are some stories about people that have tried to do that replication and have found yeah. it just hasn't worked. And yeah, I think you have to allow people their, their, their humanness and allow them to, um, you know, to build and manage their own space, their own relationships and figure out how, how to, yeah, there's only so much of it that technology is going to be able to replicate or enable. Um, it, it definitely has its limitations. There's no question about that. So if we think then, then okay, that um, we have to get, we potentially have to get, or we have this opportunity to really um, sweat the technological asset for a change rather than being the other way around. Um, how do how would businesses, how do organizations, how do people think about this move to online? What, what should they be considering? Well, a lot of it depends, obviously, the, the type of business that you have and the kinds of customers that you have. Uh, you know, we're, we're witnessing a lot of very intriguing innovations. Um, and some of them are uh, people discovering how to use whatever assets they have now and apply them in new ways. So the classic right. example, which we're all seeing in each of our communities is, for example, the restaurants. Yeah. So as we've gone to lockdown, you know, some restaurants have just not been able to cope because they haven't been able to adapt. Uh, there's a cafe right here in our neighborhood, just a couple blocks away, that has taken what they do, which is obviously about food, and they've taken the food uh, suppliers that they have, and they've now turned themselves into a little corner market. Yes. And they built new online ordering, shopping, payment systems, 
Um, and they somehow managed to expand their liquor license so that you can now go online and order mixed drinks and order produce and fresh meats and cheeses and all these kinds of things. And, um, and then just walk in the, you know, pay for it online. Everything is ready to go. They have it all packaged. You don't have to spend any more time in the store than to just walk in and grab the bags and leave. Yeah. And they limit the number of people that are in the store at any given time. So that just they've learned how to adapt. They looked at their existing resources. They've made some minor changes in their online experience to enable new set of services and products. And the people in the neighborhood have really adapted to it and really appreciated it. It's been a great service for us in the neighborhood. Yeah. Another example is a construction company that does remodels of homes. I live in an old neighborhood, so there's a lot of remodel going on. Yeah. And so that's obviously a very high touch kind of thing, or used to be. And they've figured out how to adapt all of that to video. So now they will show you how to go around your house with your, your phone, your smartphone, and take videos of what you want remodeled. Yeah. And then <clears throat> using video, they'll come back to you and provide you actual simulations of what a remodeled room might look like based on yeah. the videos you send them. And yeah. as materials and colors and fabrics and you know, whatever you want to do. And then they'll actually then give you video simulations as well of how they'll come in and do the work and how they actually manage the day-to-day interactions. And so they've figured out how to adapt using online video. And there's so many examples. And then, you know, we probably have all had interactions with our doctors and had medical consultations, you know, through Zoom or through some other platform that we just never would have thought about doing before. Yeah. And so a lot of it is just taking what, a lot of companies and individual professionals are doing now and figuring out how to make that contact virtual instead of the face-to-face contact that we used to do. And I could name you know, lots of other yeah. examples. And, but, and but it's interesting, there's, a, there's still an implication or there's still a suspicion that we need to have this human contact. So for example, I was listening to a restaurant talking today about uh, a very famous restaurant down in the Cornwall talking about the fact that if you're going to be um, two meters apart, well, what happens when the sommelier arrives at the, the table or the waiter or waitress, because they have to be in that space. So they have to use iPads and you can, you can make the online ordering experience completely different. Now, if you go on a cruise ship, those things are already there. And it's this—it's this investment in technology, which can be a real problem. In fact, you know, arguably, the critical department in an organisation now is going to be technology, not the traditional old IT support help desk. You know, turn it on, turn it off again, but proper a proper CTO. It sounds to me like you're going to have someone in every organisation who's going to need to be driving forward that technological asset in the organization because it seems to be that all of us now are technology businesses with products and services built on yeah and and i I think one of the challenges is going to be for people that are not uh like me that are um very comfortable and very familiar with technology yeah how are we going to help those people learn how to be successful learn how to interact. Um, you know, some of the silly examples are, I don't know if you've heard this story a couple of weeks ago, our US Supreme Court was actually hearing cases online. And this is the first time they'd tried this. Yeah. And uh, somebody needed to take a bathroom break yeah. and forgot to mute their computer. And so in the midst of this highest court in the land, these all distinguished judges, you could hear the sound of a flushing toilet. 
And so people still have a, you know, there's a lot of people and in some cases it may be older people that, you know, it may be even our generation and older that have not had the amount of experience and time that a lot of younger people have had with this technology. How are we going to make it useful and usable to them so that they can figure out how to navigate it and be comfortable with it and not have it get in the way of the things that they're trying to do. So like you said, there's going to be need to be people in organizations as these new interactions are invented and this new technology comes online that are going to have to ensure that everybody has access, that everybody can do what they need to do and they're not getting stuck or getting lost. And, you know, and of course, one of the sad examples is what's happening now with the virus in a lot of our senior homes. Yes. You know, and, and, and the, it, the reliance there on technology because you, you can't go and visit anymore. Yeah. And, and, and it, even a sadder example is what's happening in hospitals as people are suffering from yeah. the, the virus and their, you know, in their last interactions in many cases with their family members is through a cell phone screen. Yeah. And so there, there's just so many examples of profound ways yeah. that the technology is having to replace what we normally have done. And, um, and, and the more, and, and as, as isolated and as sad as those cases are, that technology is providing them some small measure of connection and some small measure of closure, whatever that might be. Yeah. And so, um, you know, we need to continue to be uh, inventive and innovative and figure out how to make all of that work better and continue to advance it's, our ability to do those kinds of things. It is a fascinating problem, but it's also an amazing, I mean, from my perspective, thinking about the neuropsychology of people, this idea that as people get older, the more they embrace change, of course, the more they build the neuroplasticity of the brains and such like. And there are great stories of people who are older and who are suddenly FaceTiming their relatives or Skyping or Zooming there. And suddenly they've gone from seeing their relatives or having a postcard or a letter, you know, once every six months to a year. They're now online every single week. And I think it's that thing about saying the paradigm shift for people who are older is bigger than for people who are younger, but that doesn't mean that it can't be bridged. Somehow the technology has to be more enabling or cuddlier or user-friendly because the logic is different, isn't it? If you've grown up in the early 1900s to having grown up in the very, very late 1900s. The, the, and it's, it's, it's that challenge, isn't it? It's about how do we... How do we instill a different logic into people? And I suppose that's where you guys come in. Yeah, and, and, and in many ways, the, um, the, the lessons that we're learning now from those interactions and, the, and the, the number of people now that have to rely on these technologies, where before it was a convenience or it was a novelty or whatever it might be, it's begun to, in many cases, begun to shift to a necessity. Which for a lot of us in the profession is is a is a new is a new challenge. Yeah. Uh, because before the urgency wasn't there, and um, and again the, the difference between you know in some cases it's it's life and death kind of situations, and that's that's a new challenge for us to figure out how to um, for people that may be significantly impaired that may not have much experience with technology, how are we going to create? Uh, devices, how are we going to create interfaces, how are we going to create experiences now that, um, that that remove a lot of the friction and remove a lot of the challenges that people traditionally yeah. have had with this technology. So it's, it's definitely a new frontier in many, uh, in many ways. 
And I think the excitement for me is um, AI, mm -hmm. which is mildly exciting, but I'm now getting out my favorite bit of kit out of the box and just waving it in your direction. And mm -hmm. this, this I think is the future, which is VR, virtual reality. And, you know, you look at learning and training and simulate, you know, the thing you said about house redesign, I think we've got a situation coming soon where the simpler, if you learn how to wear a headset, which is the, which is the barrier to entry, as it were, to acceptance as it does, the idea that you're there in real time, I mean, that could radically transform the world. In fact, there was a very, there was an article, there was a book written in the early 1910s or 20s called The Hood, which is the story of a person that had a, this early prescient writer who talked about this idea of a hood where you wore this headset and, uh, and, you, and, you, and the, the human beings lost, lost their ability to move because their entire sensory experience was generated by virtual reality. And, and I just wonder to, you know, how far we're away from that VR experience coming in, because that's the ultimate user experience, isn't it? Well, there actually are some, there are actually some, some baby steps in that direction. Mm. So uh, Apple is starting to introduce some new technology. It's called LiDAR. You maybe have seen some press releases about this. Their latest um, uh, uh, iPad has this technology in the camera, and they're about to launch, Apple's about to launch their iPhone 12 series, and the iPhone 12 will have this LiDAR technology in the camera as well. Well, so what this does, so what you just described is virtual reality. It creates a entire immersive experience yeah but there's also this intermediate stage which is augmented reality yes and so the lidar in your phone so now you can pick up your smartphone and the camera in the smartphone will will be able to sense the physical space around you wow and you can now start to merge the actual real experience the physical experience of what's around you with some augmented intelligence and some artificial uh, simulations as well. So for example, for, you know, simple things like designing uh, what you want in a room for purchasing furniture yes. or, you know, for managing. And of course, now that we're a lot more sensitive to physical space yeah. and social distancing, there might be more creative ways too to manage how we interact with one another when we're in more confined spaces. So yeah. this ability now of smartphones to be able to detect our physical environment beyond what the camera can do is an intermediate step towards that type of artificial uh, yes. uh, space management and reality kind of kind of experience yeah. that we're so that's coming and and soon we're going to all have it in our phones so it's a it's 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 going to be a big deal and it's going to be a lot of fun too I think so we'll yeah. to well, see I mean, what they do with it we no longer need car showrooms do we because that's going to do away with all of that because you don't apart from this this is what I think about the VR thing because it's the central experience of driving is created but I mean that's half step is you know, will revolutionize the way we sell certain products, won't it? Because you'll be able to get a, a, um, a closer grasp of what they're all about. So I'm, I'm curious, in your profession right now, with everything that's happening in the world, what are you hearing about some of the big challenges that people are dealing with when it comes to, I mean, just life in general, but also how they deal with technology and how they deal with technology replacing a lot of the things that they, you know, the traditional ways that they used to do things? Well, I think there's a bell curve, isn't there, between those people who are actively pushing it away and running and hiding from it. Those through to those at the other end who are fully embracing and yelling for more. Uh, and then you've got everybody in between. You've also got people who, of course, are that 
the end of the bell curve that says, actually, I'm going to lose my job because of technology and I am educationally impoverished because I don't have the wherewithal to be able to reskill. And, and we often talk about sort of, you know, white collar jobs where it's all, it's all great to have all this technology around this because we've got stacks of cash and we do something about it. But if you're working three jobs, you know, delivering pizzas and such like, that's, you're going to be disenfranchised from this. So I think there's going to be a social engineering problem in the future that's going to come from this, which is, you know, one of, it's just one of those things. I think, um, I think it's, it's possibly the most innovative time I've lived through in terms of thinking about this. And I just think people are struggling. It's two things they're struggling with. They're struggling with the, the core um, infrastructure. So we've all got the technology, but we don't have the, the, um, the bandwidth to actually run the technology. So if yeah. you've got, if you're in this country and you, I mean, we've been having 10 outages a day on a business broadband connection because of our, the way our supplier works. And oh my. And we're and we're in we're not in the country or hidden anywhere. We're in you know we're in a in a near a large city and such like, and and so the infrastructure in the company country is a, a big thing. And of course the internet itself. I mean you know there's I think there's big issues around that. Um, so I think these there's the the fancy down stuff. There's the fundamentals, and I think there's the bit in the middle, which is how you reprocess, re-engineer the way you think about technology and begin to use it. As I say, you can't just shift everything online and just replicate what you did. And, and in the world of therapy, a lot of people have just done that and said, okay, let's do some sophisticated counseling or hypnotherapy. Let's just do it online, doing it the same way. And I don't, I, you know, I think we need to be cleverer than that. I yeah, think, we do. Uh, if the technology is that clever and human beings are that clever, it's how do we actually, you know, not replace our own cleverness with the, the limitations of the tech, of the technology again we have to force the technology to work for us again i think that's really important so so in, long, in this long answer, sorry in this context of resilience mm. it, i would i would guess that my so my next question was going to be so is the technology helping people be more resilient or is it making resilience more challenging given okay. everything else i have to deal with my guess is that's probably also a bell curve there are probably people that that find a lot of this enabling and it's making their lives easier and for some people it's just yet more stuff to figure out and more stuff to, yeah. to that doesn't work or it's, it creates more frustration etc that for them i mean you still get is issues in in this country of certain organizations who won't use zoom mm. because we've heard zoom's not safe it's run by the chinese and therefore we have to use microsoft teams and mm -hmm. and so you still get that large scale top-down management by uh, risk and management by bureaucracy. So we have to use Microsoft Teams. It's not as good, it's not as useful, it's not as reliable, but it's approved and mm -hmm. therefore we're going to do it. And so the levers of power in some of the big organizations and the big institutions are, are something that will hang on to the past if we're not careful. And it's almost like we've set lots of rabbits loose running across a field and we've got some quite big farmers with huge guns firing rounds and salvos at those people go back get back in the box you you know you've, there's a there's a there's a protocol for that and we're not writing a new one because we you know we invented this in 1862 and there's no way we're getting back to it i mean is that your reading over there in the states yeah i think that's pretty consistent you know my sense is that i'm a I'm also kind of a news junkie and even more so now with everything, especially the last few weeks in the U.S. with everything happening over here. And of course, now it's spreading, you know, the, this whole, the whole issues around social justice and police reform and everything are now spreading worldwide. But 
Um, you know, I, yeah, I, I think that a lot of the challenges that you're facing there in the UK, I think are a lot of them are comparable to what's happening here in the US. Yeah. So this is, um, you know, is going to be a big deal. You know, another one that I think is, is, is sort of on the horizon or maybe it's starting to become more integrated into our lives is uh, this whole issue around personal privacy and yeah. what, what role technology will play in that. And I actually have done quite a bit of research on privacy and, and, and uh, I think we're about to completely redefine what that means because I think to really get a handle on the virus and now that we're in the US trying to open back up yeah. and summer's coming and, and of course with all the protests in the street now, you know, our curve was going down and it's now hit an inflection point and it's starting back up again. And there are some places in the US where the virus is really starting to take off again, which of course everybody was concerned was going to happen. And, you know, we'll very shortly be seeing the effects of all these large gatherings in the streets. Yeah. But at some point to get a handle on this, we're going to need some combination of testing, tracing, tracking, vaccinations, and all of this to, to get out of this cycle. Yeah. It, which means that we're part of that solution is probably going to be technology. And if that's true, then we're going to have to be willing to give up some maybe major aspects of our personal privacy way beyond what we've done so far. And I think uh, I certainly in this country, I think there's going to be a tremendous resistance to that in, uh, in a lot of sectors, a lot of, a lot of segments of the population. Um, what, what's the kind of the general reaction or the, the general feeling in the UK about those privacy issues right now with regard to the virus? Well, I think we've got two streams of privacy, haven't we? We've got the, commercial privacy which is the fact that google knows everything you've ever done inside leg measurements facebook all those sort of platforms and i think people are slow i think the cambridge analytica thing really woke people up to this idea and of course the europeans are much more interested in privacy in a way which is where the gdpr sort of swash came through through sort of mm -hmm. came from the european side but it is interesting the the degree to which different cultures treat their own privacy and you know if you look arguably a sort of test track and trace out in singapore and the asia they think differently about public um, privacy over there so they've got more centralized apps and they're, they're giving you know they're they're thinking they're not so bothered about that because there's a sort of a sense of a greater good but as you yes. come across to our more in, in so supposedly independent supposedly democratic um supposedly freer countries you know over here we sort of have this illusion of of privacy we have this illusion of freedom don't we and so we tend to defend and, and rail against this even though even though everybody knows everything already what we just haven't done is monetized our own brands we just haven't figured that bit out yet that yeah. we're valuable we just give the value away to someone else yes right <laughs> but i think well, it's maybe, um go on, maybe with with this transformation maybe we'll uh, maybe people will be willing to take a little bit more ownership for it maybe it'll, it'll bubble it up to the point where people better understand the importance of it i don't know we'll see that i think the jury's still out on that yeah. one i think i think what's been interesting about this for me has been the the democratization or and the revealing of the idea of the extent to which the media have lost their influence and lost their trust uh this idea that actually we we watch the events of um uh is it minneapolis i can't remember the city mm -hmm. now, i think yeah. it was yeah and that was the good side of social media but what we've seen is the bad side of the media, you know, going out, uh, creating negativity, um, creating fear, panic, anxiety, all that sort of stuff, basically because they've got nothing else to talk about 24-7. And now they've got, you know, that, that situation, we've got something else to talk about. And, and I think what we see now is that 
there's a there's a negative effect of the 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 content which sits on the technology being important because if you've got vitriolic content on great technology you've got issues on your hands i mean we're getting to a sort of you know 1984 scenario here aren't we with with people who are taking great technology and really starting to undermine some of the big sort of levers of democracy in the in the west i think yeah that yeah that is that is definitely happening and um and and you're right about the the uh, public popular media and press uh i think that something that's completely unprecedented there's a lot of things that are unprecedented i think we've used that word too much but something that's completely unprecedented is the amount of information we have right now at our fingertips in our pockets and the and yet the the, the complete lack of knowledge and and yes. and and truth that we have yes so it, there's so many uh, conflicting perspectives and even around something like the uh, the virus itself, it seems like things change every day on yeah. how much distance should we be keeping, what happens indoors versus outdoors, how good are masks, you know, what, what treatments work and what don't. And even the major organizations like the World Health Organization and here in the U.S., the CDC, it seems like the, the answers constantly change. Yeah. And there's all sorts of experts and you know talking heads that want to share their opinions and yeah. so there's a, so much information but so little knowledge and, that, and I, think I i at times even find that overwhelming yeah i, I think that's fascinating isn't it and this this difference when we talked about that that venn diagram you know we've got this the technologies sort of let an information cut out of the bag and actually we don't have the mechanisms to synthesize or um, being able to make sense of that anymore because the traditional press, the traditional media, are part of the problem now. They're yes. just they're just platforms now. They're not they're not trusted. Contact the BBC over here has lost its luster recently. It's being seen openly to be, you know, not not um, impartial anymore. I mean, you know, so so we're 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 having a situation now where I think um, we're in an interesting time, aren't we? We're, we're, we're in that fascinating, as I say, that Venn diagram makes it fascinating for us how much technology is hobbling us and freeing us, but it's making us less trusting. So maybe all we will be able to rely on soon is technology. You know, maybe it will be an algorithm that allows us to search through, search through every social media file and say, well, actually, this is, the, this is the average view, but this is the actual fact that was said. Yes. The human hasn't spun it into a channel to make it different every single day. You know, the- yeah, and, 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 and we're seeing that now with, in a big way. And I regularly do work with Facebook and Twitter yeah. and other, other social media companies. And, um, and they're, we're right now on the cusp of those, uh, those platforms having to make very difficult decisions yeah. about content. Yeah. So the technology is there to enable us to put out anything we want to and sometimes it feels like our president is willing to put out just about anything he wants to and as a society what are we going to do about that yeah because again individual people there's a very wide span of individuals people's capacity to make informed choices about what's true and what's not yes and 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 we so easily get drawn in by these uh, cults of personality and, and yeah. conspiracy theories. And yeah, it, it's chaos right now. Probably more, it's certainly more than it's ever been. And yeah. so uh, it, from the standpoint of what you do and people's ability to cope and, and you know, what really is resilience, 
uh, I think we're making it a lot harder for people in, the, in, in yes. that regard. Well, it's, it's different. And I think like everything, um, difference creates all sorts of ambiguities and such like. And I know, no doubt there'll be some lawyer sitting, you know, in an office somewhere licking his lips, you know, and printing a new set of business cards because this is a new opportunity for them. Because the, the person with the biggest gun chasing those rabbits is always the lawyers slowing them yes, down. Yes, right, yeah. I mean, if, I mean, this is part of the issue of the last 20 years, isn't it? The effective litigation. Yeah. Now, I'm conscious that and I'm not being respectful of your time at all here. I'm conscious we've got onto big picture, almost philosophy here. But let's yes. bring it back. Let's bring it back to the sort of manageable. Okay. Um, so I know you have a bunch of tools and, and um, content resources, which are great for people to actually make these decisions for their own selves and their own businesses. So tell us a bit more about that and how, how we can get hold of you, Bob. Yeah. So if you, uh, we've created a landing page for your podcast. If you go to itstheusers.com slash resilience, then we have a pretty extensive library of courses, uh, ebooks, materials, how-to uh, templates, etc., that can help you get started from the very beginning on user experience and how to do a lot of the adaptations that we're talking about and how to create the kinds of experiences that are going to work for your business and whatever customers or audience you're trying to reach. Uh, in addition to that, that's all free. In addition to that, uh, I will provide a personalized consulting session for you as well to help you get started because this can be kind of complicated. And again, I do this constantly for the biggest brands in the world. So I'd be very happy to share that. We're also in the process as researchers of really trying to learn what people are doing. So if you, if we, if you decide to sign up for that, I will certainly share what I know and help people with their own challenges but I'm gonna to wanna to listen and learn and find out how people are dealing with this so, as well. So this will be a two-way exchange. So again, it's itstheusers.com slash resilience, and you can get all the downloadable materials for free, and we can have that dialogue about how I can help you and what, what's happening in your world, and we can uh, start to put together some knowledge on how to do this better. Brilliant, and it's, it's without a, an apostrophe, just to- Correct, yes. Yeah, just to make that great. That's absolutely fantastic. Bob, it's been an absolute joy. And I, I, whilst I know I could chat to you all day, I, I cannot because uh, that would not be fair for your time. So thank you so much for spending time with us today. I've really appreciated your contribution. Russell, it's been a joy. All the best to you and all your audience as well. Thanks so much. You take care. Hi, everybody. I hope you found that episode useful and interesting. Feedback is always welcomed, and if you are in the mood to subscribe to us or even leave a comment on iTunes or Stitcher, that would be amazing. If you want to suggest ideas or even people you would like me to interview, then reach out to us at qedod.com forward slash contact. As I said earlier, you can go to qedod.com forward slash podcast for show notes or follow the links. And you can go to qedod.com forward slash extras to access offers, tools and resources, including free articles and ebooks. For those of you that would be interested in supporting our work and contributing more proactively, you can find our new Patreon page at patreon.com, then search for Resilience Unraveled. I look forward to being in your ear next time around. Take care.